We turn tonight to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. Last time we were in John, we looked at the first 16 verses or so of John, chapter 5, the healing of the lame man, and results in a controversy. We'd like to look tonight at verses 16 through 30, but I'll reread that section of the healing that forms the catalyst here. John 5 at verse 1, we hear the God-breathed scriptures. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And then our focus for tonight. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does... The Son also does in like manner, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me 
has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. We'll end our scripture reading there. And we'll bow in prayer and ask for God's help. Our Father in heaven, what a glorious revelation you've given to us in John chapter 5. What a magnificent passage, what depths of truth, what a difficult passage for our finite minds. And we pray you will give help to the preaching and to the hearing of the word tonight, that the Son of God may be glorified among us, and that we may give him the honor due his name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Sometimes we're told that controversy is a problem, that we should avoid all controversy. And indeed, there's plenty of controversy to avoid. Paul told Timothy to avoid foolish disputes. Repeatedly, the Bible says to stay away from quarrels about things that don't matter. But there are controversies that do matter. The history of the church has proven that. Very often, controversies have brought about great things. Think of the early centuries of the church. It was the controversies about the Trinity and the persons of the Godhead. It was the controversy about Christ and his two natures, God and man. It was the controversy that was the catalyst for hammering out these truths, for studying the scriptures and for writing the creeds and for dividing from the lie, the truth. And so that was important. It's even interesting that in the scriptures, often the scriptures that are so important for these truths themselves were given in a context of controversy. And case in point, the passage before us this evening. Jesus makes magnificent statements here about who he is in relationship to the Father that become the basis of much of what we confess about the triune God and about the personal identity of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, but they're spoken in a context of controversy. What he says about himself as the Son of God was bound to bring about controversy. But unfortunately, there have been some who have decided that the safer thing to do is to avoid the controversy. And so some have said, we just... We just need to say Jesus is a good teacher. That's sort of the middle road. It's not that we're not going to honor him, but we don't want to go so far as to call him divine. We'll just call him a good teacher. C.S. Lewis had it right on this point when he wrote, either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him or kill him as a demon Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come to him with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. 
He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. Whether or not Jesus Christ is the Son of God means everything. It's not a small matter. The very gospel hangs on this. The identity of Christ as the eternal Son of God. And Jesus in our text, he announces it and he demonstrates it and he proves it. He has come revealing himself here, showing forth his glory that we may believe. And you remember, this is the whole reason John writes this gospel, as he tells us at the end of the gospel, that these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Only by believing Jesus is the Son of God can you have life in his name. Let's look this evening at this reality. Notice, first of all, the provocative claim that Christ makes, verses 16 and 17, the provocative claim. And then take note of the breathtaking explanation in verses 18 through 23, the breathtaking explanation. And then finally, the enormous consequences, the enormous consequences in verses 24 through 30. Well, if you remember back a couple of weeks, you remember, as we've read it tonight, what, what leads to the great controversy here, it's that a man, who's lying among many sick men, gets a visit from Jesus who says to the paralyzed man, get up, take up your mat, and walk. And the man does that. He gets up. He's healed instantaneously by this mighty power of the Lord Jesus. And he takes up his mat, and he, he begins to walk. But it's the Sabbath day, and the Sabbath police are out in full force, and they catch him. Hey! carrying a mat. They had some 39 rules about the Sabbath, the Pharisees did, about ways that you might break the Sabbath. And they were out in full force to catch those who would be doing this. And so they confront the man. What are you doing? He says, well, the man who healed me told me to do this. They said, who is the man, not who healed you, but who is the man who said, take up your bed and walk? And eventually the man finds out it was Jesus, and he tells them it's Jesus And then the dispute starts in verse 16. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus, sought to kill him because he'd done these things on the Sabbath. And then Jesus answers them. Verse 17, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. Now, this is a remarkable statement Christ makes. New Testament scholars tell us that at this very time, the the Jews were taken up with the question, Does God obey his own laws? Does God obey his own commandments? And specifically, does God obey the Sabbath commandment? They understood what Jesus said in the first part there, that that the Father has been working. They understood that. That though God created the world in six days and rested the seventh day, though he entered his rest, that they knew what we heard this morning in terms of God's providence, that though he rested from creating He did not rest of everything. He continued to uphold the world and to govern the world. God's rest is not the rest of inactivity. So when Jesus says that that the Father God has been working, they would agree he has been working. But the question they wrestled with then, is God guilty of violating his own law? Is he guilty of violating the Sabbath law? Sometimes they got kind of clever to put this all together. The famous New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce notes a story from about the time that John was writing this gospel account. 
story is that there were four quite important rabbis who visited Rome, and while visiting Rome, they were presented with this question whether or not God keeps the Sabbath laws. And so they concocted this rather ingenious argument. They decided that since the whole universe is God's, that God and his working did not carry in anything outside of his dwelling place. That would be to break the Sabbath. And since God is so great, reaching to the heavens, God didn't lift anything higher than his own stature, which would be to break the Sabbath, according to them. And therefore, they could conclude God kept the Sabbath. Casuistry, obviously. But whoever the Jews tried to answer the question, they all agreed that God was busy on the Sabbath, upholding the world, ruling the world, governing the world, and working for redemption. But what they can't handle is when Jesus says, I'm just doing what my father has been doing. I'm just doing what my father's been doing. If, if it's good for him to be working on the Sabbath, it's good for me to be working on the Sabbath. Now, that was a, a staggering claim for these Jews to hear. Because if they knew one thing from, from the Old Testament scriptures, it was that, that God is one. There are not many gods, but one God and a unique God. And no man is God. Right? Isaiah 45, I am the Lord and there is no other. Isaiah 40, to whom then will you compare me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. And now there's a man standing before them saying, I am his equal. He is my father. I am his son. Verse 18, therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him. Because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Now, it's interesting that what the Jews saw so clearly that Jesus was claiming equality with God, various false teachers have tried to deny both that Jesus is God and to deny that Jesus claimed he was God. You can read the Jehovah's Witnesses materials, for instance, and they say repeatedly that Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, that's remarkable because there the Jews were who knew the Old Testament and there were the Jews who were standing face to face with Jesus, listening to him, and they concluded he was claiming to be God. We might say cynically, well, if only the Jehovah's Witnesses had been present, we could have have arrested this whole controversy. They could have told the Jews, he's not claiming to be God, and there would never have been a crucifixion. Well, of course not. Of course not. The Jews understood that he was making himself equal to God. And as the episode goes on, Jesus does not back down one inch to retract any of the claims or assumptions, but he presses forward with the point. And so we move on to consider the breathtaking explanation that Jesus gives here. Repeatedly here, Christ calls himself the Son, the Son, the Son. And then in verse 25, he says it fully, the Son of God. And he explains there's the glorious unity of the Father and Son in a passage that's really extraordinary. And there's many facets to this that are quite deep and heavy in terms of inter-Trinitarian theology and understanding how this all goes together. 
But I think we could say that Jesus is saying at least three things about himself here in these verses. Number one, he is, he is proclaiming a personal unity with the Father in verses 19 and 20. When he says, most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. There's a perfect unity of the Father and the Son. We, of course, could think of analogies, human analogies, hardly compare of, of sons who imitate their fathers. Right? Sometimes little boys begin to walk like their dad or talk like their dad or dress like their dad. They, they learn of their father and they do certain things. And, and in that they express maybe a bit of the genetic unity they share with their father, certainly something of the, the loving unity of a son loving his father. But what Christ speaks here of, I think, the eternal unity between the members of the Godhead, the eternal Father and his eternal Son. The Father is the first person of the Godhead because he's not begotten, he's not proceeding, but he is the Father who begets. And the Son is the one who's begotten. We speak of the eternal generation of the Son. He's generated, he's begotten, not in time, the way a father today has a son at a specific moment in time, but it's an eternal relationship that speaks to their individual personness or subsistences, that the father is not begotten, but the son is the one who is begotten. And in this way, there's this eternal union of father and son, the father shares his mind with the Son. The Son knows the mind of his Father. The Father wills this, and the Son knows his will and reveals the will of his Father. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And so as Jesus comes upon the earth now, the Son of God coming in our human nature, he's revealing the Father to us. He who has seen the Son has seen the Father. As you see the works that Christ is doing, as you hear the words he speaks, as you watch him, for instance, healing this lame man, you are seeing the heart and the will of the Father. And Jesus says, if this is making you stumble, well, hold on to your seats, because the Father will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. All the words Christ uttered, all the works he did during his life on earth are the implementing of God's will, are the making known of God's name and the Father's perfections and counsel and good pleasure. So there's that, first of all, the personal unity with the Father. But the second thing we could point out here is that Jesus announces that he, through the Father, has the power of life, the power of life. He says in verse 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. And then Jesus says it even more dramatically in verse 26, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Now, sometimes there's debate here. Is this referring to something eternal in terms of the Persons of the Godhead. We speak of the ontological trinity, the, the, the study of being. So we speak of the ontological trinity, the relationships of Father, Son, and Spirit eternally. 
And then we speak sometimes of the economic trinity, the trinity now in the economy of redemption, fulfilling certain roles, right? The Son is sent by the Father, the Son comes in obedience to the Father, and so forth. I think in this case, verse 26, that it's talking about the eternal relationships, that as the Father begets the Son, in terms of the eternal generation of the Son, the Father gives to the Son the power of life in himself. I noted this morning that this is something that God alone has. We we speak in theology of the incommunicable attributes of God and the communicable attributes of God. The communicable attributes of God are those attributes that find some analogy in man. So God is good, God is loving, and so are his people in some reflective way. But the incommunicable attributes are those which God himself possesses, and they find no analogy in us. And the first of these is the self-existence of God. The independence of God. Sometimes it was called the ascety of God. That, that God has life in himself. He is the I am who I am. He's not created. He's not dependent on any other. Unlike us, we are entirely dependent. And as the Father is the first person of the Trinity who eternally begets the Son, he, in a certain way, gives to the Son what he himself has, the power of self-existence, the power of life. Not in time. Not that there ever was a time the Son didn't have it, but in terms of their relationship. Thirdly, Jesus tells us here that he has not only the personal unity with the Father, not only the power of life from the Father, but he has from the Father the prerogative of judgment. He says in verse 22, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. All judgment to the Son. The right to proclaim the eternal destinies of mankind has been entrusted to the Son. He will stand as judge. He has a reward for his perfect work is given that high honor of Lord, all men will pass before the Lord Jesus Christ and be judged. And why has God given him that prerogative, verse 23, so that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Father and Son are one in essence. And in their works, and therefore the same honor that belongs to the Father belongs also to the Son. They are co-eternal. They are co-equal. The Son deserves the worship and praise as the Father is worthy of the worship and praise. And when you see all of that, doesn't it begin to make sense why Satan is so devoted to blaspheming the name of Jesus Christ? And to leading all kinds of cults and heresies into denying the deity of the Lord Jesus. Jesus is true God. And there's no way to the Father but through him. 
John writes in 1 John 4, Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not is not from God. If you can't acknowledge that, that the one who walked upon the earth, who was born of Mary, is the Son of God come in human nature, then you can't be saved. As one commentator writes it, Unless Christ is acknowledged, received, and trusted as mediator, God is only a three-letter word. God reveals himself in Jesus Christ. So when people talk about believing in God, quote-unquote, and have not the slightest commitment to Christ, or even explicitly reject the claims of Christ, Jesus himself is telling them, you do not know my Father. God, quote-unquote, in abstraction from the Son he sent to be the Savior, is not the living God, but the construct of a combination of willful ignorance and wishful thinking in the minds of spiritually blind and lost. There's no way to know God unless you know Jesus Christ as the Son of God. So it's the summons to believe on him, to come to him and to give him the honor and the glory due his name. This is the Son of God in whom we trust, in whom we believe, in whom we have life. And when we do that, when we recognize him, who he is, and we put our faith in him, then we also want to live for him, and then we're even willing to die for him. This is the Son of God. We looked at the Heidelberg Catechism this morning, but one of our other confessions, the the Belgic Confession, was written by Pastor Guido de Bray. And Guido de Bray was on the run for a lot of years, persecuted, and was finally captured. And then he sat in prison, and was condemned to die. And so he wrote a letter to his wife and said many things to her. And then he wrote, I pray you, my dearly beloved, to console yourself with meditation on these things. Consider the honor that God has done you in giving you a husband who is not only a minister of the Son of God, but so esteemed of God that he allowed him to have the crown of martyrs. It is an honor, the like of which God has never, ever given to the angels. And then the story is told that on the last Saturday of May, the provost came to the prisoners, to Guido de Bray and some others, and told them at about 3 o'clock that they were going to be executed on this day at about 6 o'clock so they could get ready. And when they did that, then the servants of the gospel began to praise God. They thanked the provost for the good news which he had brought to them. Soon after this, they rose, and Guido de Bray went into the front court to say good day to the other prisoners. He testified to them of his joy when he spoke to them in this way, My brothers, I am condemned to death today for the doctrine of the Son of God. Praise be to him. I would never have thought that God would have given me such an honor. I remember reading those words for the first time and thinking about the Aguirre de Bray, one of our heroes of the faith, the author of the Belgic, and contemplating his marvel, the wonder that he should die for the Son of God. Not for some army captain, not some, for some famous general, General Washington, not for, not for the Union, not for principle of freedom, 
but that he should give his life, that he should be asked to lay down his life for the Son of God. Has it struck you lately who your Lord Jesus is? Or have you in your thinking and way of praying and living got them all neatly wrapped up as a small, tiny little Jesus? He's the Son of God, the eternal Son of the eternal Father. And though he became a human, he is not just like us. He is just like us in terms of all the necessity of taking our place beneath the curse of God. But he is not just like us, for he is the eternal one. And he demands our faith. And if we believe in him, then he also has our worship, doesn't he? And we should live every day saying, what an honor that I should get to live for the Son of God. That I should have such a friend as the Son of God. I should have such a master. So we've seen the provocative claim and the breathtaking explanation. But finally, let's look at the enormous consequences that follow. Jesus says, as we read in verse 23, that he who doesn't honor the Son doesn't honor the Father who sent him. And then he says in verse 24, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. It's the consequences of life and death, and life and death eternally, isn't it? And so this claim of Christ is like a wedge. Maybe you've split firewood with an axe before. You've certainly seen someone doing that, and you know that, that when that axe head comes down to the wood, there is no neutrality, there is no compromise When that ox head comes through dried wood, there is the cracking sound of division, one side or the other. So it is with the revelation of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. It's life or it's death. And so Christ reveals here now that his claims bring division and that The power of life he'd spoken of and the prerogative of judgment are revealed here in more detail as Christ speaks now of two resurrections. I think the first is the resurrection of the soul, new life, and the second is the resurrection of the body at Christ's return. And the first resurrection is being spoken of in verses 24 and verse 25. When Jesus says, the one who hears his word and believes on him has everlasting life. He's past He has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, verse 25, the hour is coming and now is, now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. It's happening right now. The hour is that that Christ by his word is speaking and out of spiritual tombs people are coming. Dead souls are being awakened. Life is coming by the Spirit of Christ. And to those who were dead. So it's a present reality. Life is a present reality. Our hearts are raised from the dead. If we reject the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, who can bring us to God? Who can raise us from death? Who can impart life to our souls? 
He alone has the power and the authority to do that. And the person who experiences this first resurrection doesn't need to fear death on the day of judgment. It's interesting that in Revelation 20, you also have this spoken of the first resurrection and then a later resurrection. And Revelation 20 says, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such people, the second death has no power. So that means that our relationship to Christ in this life determines our relationship to Christ for eternity. Only if you experience resurrection in this life, that your soul is raised, that your life, your heart is born again, only if that's the case will you escape the second death, the power of death at judgment day. But then Jesus speaks about the second resurrection in verses 27 through 29, that God's given authority to execute judgment. And he says in verse 28, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. The second resurrection is that general universal resurrection that happens when Jesus Christ returns. I don't think there's anything in the Bible that teaches us to believe that there's going to be multiple resurrections or that there's going to be a resurrection of believers and a thousand years later a resurrection of unbelievers. I think as you read the scriptures, read 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, that we have this one grand event that the Son of God comes with the trumpet blast and the dead are raised. We read in Revelation chapter 20, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Words of revelation, but also by the Spirit, they were written by John's pen, the same John. So Christ is telling us that it's by his mighty voice that the dead are going to be called forth from their graves on that last day. What a glorious day that will be when the Son of God appears in all of his glory and every tomb is opened and all the bodies cast in the bottom of the sea are raised and death and Hades give up their dead and they stand before Christ for judgment. To the Son, the Son of Man now he's called. is the right of judgment. All are resurrected, but not in the same condition. Some are resurrected unto life. Others are resurrected unto condemnation. But the enormous thing here is this, that God has put our eternal destiny in the hands of his beloved Son. God has placed in the hands of his Son the determination of the eternal destiny of every single one of us.
To know Christ is to know that on that day I'll be able to stand. Because the one who has called me to himself and given life to my heart, the one who is the judge in that day is the one who has already stood trial in my place and borne the curse upon me and my sin. And when I see that judge, I'll rejoice that all is well. To reject Jesus Christ and to deny him his honor as the Son of God is to know that when he comes on that day, it will be the most fearsome and worst day of my entire existence. Because I, before the Son of God, will be cast into everlasting fire. And so Jesus Christ calls sinners to believe on him, the one who reveals the Father to us and the way to the Father through his saving death. And so you see that those who are overly eager to avoid controversy in this life will discover the very worst kind of tension and controversy of all life on that last day. But those who are willing to embrace Jesus Christ in the midst of controversy to go outside the gates to where Jesus is cast out of Jerusalem, to embrace this Christ despised by the world, to give him the honor as the Son of God, to believe on him, will find on that last day not controversy and tension, but glorious, glorious peace as the Son of God confesses you before the Father. So before this Savior, we bow. And we put away the stubbornness, the self-sufficiency, and all the arrogance that wants to say, well, he's not really so special, but I'll take him as a good teacher. No, we fall on our faces and confess that he's God. He knows us in our sin. And he has come to deliver us from God's curse. May we embrace Christ in the midst of the controversy, that we might have Christ in peace forever. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for giving to us your beloved, and we thank you for his glorious revelation, so clear, so straightforward, so powerful, that we may know him in truth. And we pray, Lord, for the hearts of heretics and cult leaders asking, Lord, that you would turn them in repentance or that you would silence their lips. We pray for those who have been captive bound by false interpretations, that the light of your word would shine upon them, that they would realize that, that these lies about Jesus cannot stand before the test of Scripture. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you receive our thanks, and that you have delivered us from the lie of the evil one, to know your beloved Son as the eternal Son of God and as our Savior. In his name we give you thanks and we pray that you will guard us for that great day in his hand. In Jesus' name, amen.